Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Joining me on the line today is a very special guest, someone I've been wanting to get on the show for a very long time. Glad to have finally connected. Megan Day is a staff writer at Jacobin. She's a member of East Bay DSA chapter out there in California, and she's writing a book. She's going to tell us all about it. Thanks for joining us, Megan. Yeah, thanks for having me. So this book has just been announced recently. You're going to be writing it with a recent guest of DPS, Micah Utrecht. Tell us about that book. It's tentatively titled Bigger Than Bernie. What's that all about? Yeah, right. Exactly. It's so tentatively, we don't know if we're going to stick with the title, but the reason that we came up with Bigger Than Bernie is because it kind of describes a bit what we're trying to do with the book. I mean, Micah and I are socialists. We, uh, we both work at Jacobin and we're extraordinarily excited about Bernie Sanders's candidacy in part because we've already seen how Bernie Sanders has elevated the level of class consciousness in the political culture, but we also know that there's a role for people like us to actually push it a step further, to say things that Bernie, because of the context that he's operating in, uh, can't necessarily say or it wouldn't be wise for him to say. So we are going to write a book where we basically lay out a very accessible uh, vision of you know what capitalism is, what its uh, contemporary iteration neoliberalism is, and what socialism is, and then make the case for people who are sort of Bernie curious, like Bernie Krat types, or people who are socialism curious, to pick it up and, and leaf through it and hopefully connect with some more radical ideas. Uh, we're going to try to emphasize a couple of different things in the book. One is that it's really important to contest for state power for socialists and for progressives. We assume there will be progressives reading the book who may or may not want to call themselves socialists or sort of on the fence about that. So it's important to contest for state power, but in a particular way, which is to heighten the level of class struggle, to always be raising the expectations of the working class, uniting the working class in uh, you know common cause against also a common enemy, which is the capitalist class, to be highlighting the ways in which capitalist class interests are at odds with working cl- working class interests. Um, so we're going to do that and sort of talk about the contemporary iterations of democratic socialist electoral politics that are out there right now, the sort of promises and perils of that. And then we're going to shift into discussing the importance of struggles outside the state, the sort of wonky term being extra parliamentary struggles. And we're really going to hammer home the importance of having a a robust, militant, democratic, left-wing labor movement and and talk about the importance of labor historically for the socialist project and sort of the prospects going forward, considering the plummeting union density um, but also at the same time, like I, like I mentioned, the, the rise in, in class consciousness and then a sort of fighting spirit of the working class. Um, so that's the broad outline of the book. And we're hoping that it, people will connect with it and that'll help. It'll give people like a, a sort of a, hopefully a manual a little bit to orient themselves in socialist thought, socialist politics. Hopefully some of these people will join DSA or get involved in, you know, other campaigns uh, in their local area, you know, political campaigns and and hopefully they can use the book as a sort of roadmap. Very impressive outline. It's such an early phase of this project. You know, you guys just announced very recently, just a couple weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken, that you had 
uh, signed this contract with Verso Books to write this this particular uh, this monograph, and I, I saw an interaction on Micah's wall on Facebook. It was quite comical. And I was like, well, "When is this coming out?" And I said, "Fall." And a couple academics chime in. You know, academics take like eight years to write books. So, you know, they were like, WTF, how are you guys going to do this? But judging from that outline right there, it sounds like you're well on your way. At least you have the broad strokes uh, pretty, pretty, well, pretty well figured at this point. So you just outlined our, not only the book, but the, our, the, probably the remainder of our conversation as well. So let's go ahead and dive in. Um, I'll also say about, you know, the timeline that we're working on, that if we were writing something that was, you know, supposed to be fully sprung from our individual little brains, it would take a really long time to do. But we're very lucky because we are, you know, part of a socialist movement. We've been working in various formations to hammer out these political ideas, especially over the last two and a half years since the major boom uh, in DSA. So it's like really the goal is to kind of take the political lessons that we've learned and the questions that have that have arisen thus far and to put them on the page. So that's probably why we're going to be able to get it done a lot quicker than the average book writer. No doubt. No doubt. Definitely uh, a little bit of a being far too humble on the one hand, but on the other hand, you're speaking some serious truth there. We all sort of stand on each other's shoulders and we're developing ideas collectively. And, you know, I, you know, there's a lot to be depressed about in this day and age that, you know, Trump's in the White House and so on and so forth, economic woes that we all have on a day-to-day basis. But there's a lot to be excited about. We're seeing a kind of uh, flourishing of socialist ideas uh, certainly never seen prior in my adult organizing history, which is only a decade long, but uh, really, really exciting stuff. Let's talk about some of these intra-left, intra-progressive disputes that we are going to inevitably be having over the course of the next at least six to seven months. Elizabeth Warren has announced proposal, seemingly a major proposal every week on the week for the past several months. She is getting a lot of attention in the national polls. I like to remind people that national polls don't really mean a whole lot at this point. A friend of the show, Daniel Marin's politics report at Huffington Post likes to remind folks that, you know, national polls are good for headlines, but what really matters are these kind of early battleground states, these primaries. But she is polling pretty well nonetheless nationally. And she's peeling off quite a bit of would-be Bernie Sanders support. And so you, along with your other colleagues from Jackman Magazine, I'm thinking of uh, Branko Marchetich, Prime among them, have really been waging a, a comradely struggle with Warren as a grappling opponent, if you will, being sympathetic to the aims of her policies, but also critical of the strategy and the tactics that are going to be required to be able to pull off these sweeping and, and relatively radical policies. Talk to me about your assessment of Warren in that way. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of flack for the two articles that I've written about Warren that have been somewhat critical of her. And I'm not entirely sure. I haven't really figured out what the sort of underlying dynamics are that produced such a massive wave of resentment for for my perspective, but, you know, I stand by it, which is that I, I like Elizabeth Warren quite a bit. I think that some of her proposals are really good. She has, you know, this ultra millionaire tax proposal, which obviously I can get behind. She has this real corporate profits tax as some, somewhat similar, can get behind that. You know, she's proposed universal child care, something that Bernie Sanders has often talked a lot about. It's pretty good. It retains unnecessary fees for users, and I'm not entirely sure why. Um, some of her proposals are 
are not not so great. She has this like affordable housing plan proposal that's it's kind of market based. Like its central kind of mechanism is to incentivize local governments to remove zoning restrictions so that more can be built. This is sort of like the YIMBY argument for how you, you know, uh, solve the housing crisis. In my view, that would need to be at least complemented by very heavy investment in social housing construction, you know, paid for by taxing the rich. And she has, you know, the one of hers that's really good is like her student debt uh, relief proposal. Uh, One that's really not so good is, is her, she had this proposal for solving disparities in maternal health care racial disparities in maternal health care. But the, the mechanism that it relied on was awarding money to hospitals that uh, boast fewer disparities and taking away money from hospitals that um, that boast more disparities, which is a very like no child left behind kind of approach to this question. But of course, the headlines all just said Elizabeth Warren wants to take on racial disparities in, in maternal health care. Um, and so people were excited about that. So so that's my my feeling about her, her policies is that they're like kind of a mixed bag, but overall they sort of trend in a positive direction. But the real point that I'm trying to drive home is that it's not really the question of whether or not, you know, we want somebody to become president is whether or not they have like a wonderful raft of policy proposals alone. Bernie Sanders certainly does as well, many of which he ironed out last time he ran for president. It's actually not possible for somebody who has these kinds of ideas. These A lot of these ideas, they would need to actually be implemented by circumventing the pro-corporate, you know, political establishment and battling off the capitalist elites who profit from things like, you know, like luxury housing development or, um, you know, whatever else is being sort of student loans, anything else being implicated in the proposals, right? And in order to make that happen, you have to have millions of people fighting for that on the ground, given our political scenario right now, given given the way that the state is structured and the, and the depth of sort of capitalist entrenchment in the state, you're going to have to have mass extra parliamentary movement in order to get any of it done at all. And I do see an understanding of that from Bernie Sanders. And I don't see an understanding of that from Elizabeth Warren. I've been following this stuff pretty closely. So an example of Bernie Sanders understanding this perfectly well, I'll just read you a little quote that I have pulled up here because I think it's phenomenal. He said he said things like this at a couple of different rallies. So you can find different iterations of this. I liked this one because it almost felt like it was winking at Warren a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Talking a little trash across the barricades. Friendly trash. This is good. Subtly. He said, no president, not the best intentioned, not the most honest person in the world. No one person can do it alone. Now, why is that? Because this is what's not talked about in the media, not talked about in Congress. The power structure of America is such that a small number of wealthy individuals and large corporate entities have so much influence over the economic and political life of this country that no one person can do it. You think we're going to pass Medicare for all tomorrow because the president of the United States says that's what we should do? You think we're going to take on the fossil fuel industry and effectively and aggressively combat climate change because the president of the United States thinks that that we should do that? A lot of presidents say, gee, I have a great idea. I woke up yesterday and I think healthcare for all is a good idea. That's not the way it happens. It happens when millions of people stand up and demand it. Right on, right on. He has that sort of knee-jerk orientation to that political revolution that he coined back in 2015, 2016 that he always appeals to. And it's your estimation, and and I share this uh, very deeply (laughs) with you, that your estimation that Liz Warren lacks that that grounding these, these pretty radical policies in something like a political revolution. 
Yeah, I think that you know she, she her rhetoric has gotten a little bit more a little bit more oppositional as her campaign has gone on, which is really good to see because you know my my view is that the more people who are hearing oppositional class rhetoric, the better. So if we have two candidates who are doing it instead of one, and millions of people are listening in, then all the better for our broader political project, right? But I, I feel to some extent like Elizabeth Warren's policy blitz, which is what you can sort of call her strategy of over the last like, you know, six weeks or two months has kind of actually been an attempt to find a, a shortcut around the kind of mass political approach that Bernie Sanders has taken, where he's basically going out and speaking to people over and over again about how we need to have a political revolution and we need to have, you know, working people, ordinary people coming together, uniting together, and we need to take on the millionaires and the billionaires, and we need to take on a a rigged economy, he often says. And actually, really, I was thinking about this the other day, about how much I love the phrase rigged economy, because it has this kind of like populist flourish to it you know it's not particularly wonky and it's not it's not particularly like you know he's not out there talking about you know abolishing capitalism all the time i think that would alienate people at this point in our you know in our in the sequence of our you know political struggle but a rigged economy is very different from saying like drain the swamp or get rid of the establishment or get rid of in elizabeth warren's case often she'll talk about like you know bad rules that benefit that happen to benefit certain people right so the the enemy becomes the bad rules as opposed to becomes the sort of like capitalist class even but bernie takes it a step further it's not even just the capitalist class it's actually the rigged economy there's an internal logic to capitalism we need to unrig it well if you actually unpack that what does it look like to unrig the economy for working people it points you through, you know, social democracy eventually to the point where you're going to need to implement something like socialism. So you're suggesting that uh, Bernie Sanders isn't, uh, he doesn't have it all wrong by not quoting Capital Volume 1, wherein Marx uh, claims that, you know, agents are but the bearers of certain capitalistic relations and therefore uh, capitalists themselves are subject to the working or to to the dictates of the logic of capital and therefore we should dismantle uh, capitalism tomorrow. Um, I mean, I have to, uh, as a socialist, I- <laughs> have to balance my sort of like immediate desire for satisfaction for long-term satisfying projects. So like I would be enormously satisfied if Bernie Sanders went around talking about Marx and talking about abolishing capitalism. It would bring me great joy on an immediate level. But if he's actually what he's doing instead is convincing millions and millions of working people that the economy is not is rigged and not in their favor. And that ultimately lays the groundwork for us to make our case, you know, quoting Marx at length people, then all the better. Yeah, very well said. <laughs> I think that, you know, we could even, you know, not to extend these, uh, these, these catchphrases and these metaphors too, too deeply here, but we could even compare and contrast the notion of a rigged economy versus uh, a kind of, if you call it a metaphor or a kind of allegory that, that Warren likes to pull, pull every now and then, which is this casino capitalist kind of model, which is this kind of like neo-Keynesian view of casino capitalism, capitalism as as you know, uh, this this place where people bet and speculate with your money, and if we just would sort of uh, be able to swipe away the froth on top, we could get to the pure uh, underbelly of moral capitalism, right? And um, kind of like drain the swamp from the left. It is actually very similar, and it it has totally different implications. And I'll also go on a brief tangent to say that I spent the last weekend 
in Montreal, which was wonderful. I was invited to speak at this conference up there. And I talked to a bunch of comrades from uh, Quebec Solidaire, and they were talking about the sort of tensions within their party of, you know, having a sort of like more class-focused rhetoric or having a more kind of vague populist rhetoric. And they were talking about, you know, there, there are people within that party who want to talk about the establishment. They want to talk about wiping away the political class or the sort of like a crony class or, you know, um, trade their trade that there are traitors who need to be removed, right? As though as though that were the problem, as opposed to, like I mentioned before, the rigged economy, the internal logic of capitalism, right? Right. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, people will, you know, people on our left, I'm thinking of uh, folks who who didn't like your war and pieces very much, uh, but are, are are good good folks, good guys, good people, good actors. I'm thinking of Jeff Stein, for example, WAPO journalist over there, who's a pretty. I mean, he wouldn't admit it, but he's a pretty pretty big Warren stan online, at least. Other people like say, I don't know, even Marshall Steinbaum, uh, economist at the former economist, the Roosevelt Institute, I believe. Good guy, great policy mind, uh, but he's a bit of a Warren stand at times. A lot of these people, these kind of progressive DC beltway policy wonk types are really uh, admirers of Warren because they see her as, you know, this kind of policy brain, perhaps, you know, seeing a little of, of themselves in her with that kind of background that they have. One question that I have, people like that will undoubtedly end up voting for Sanders. If and when Warren drops out of the race, I got no doubt that uh, that Steinbaum and Stein will uh, will pull the lever for Bernie in their you know in their respective primary. But what do you think will be the broad habits, the broad pattern of people who support Warren today? She polls somewhere in the ten to fourteen percent range, and most national polls holding pretty strong. I mean, keep in mind that the top three or four are really dominating behind them. You're seeing like four and 3%. How many of those 10 to 14% do you think will ultimately end up pulling the lever for, for Sanders? What is it that keeps them Warren supporters in spite of this massive Bernie wave? Is it a personal disdain for Sanders uh, or will they be able to get over that hump and vote for him in the end? Yeah, it's really hard to know because I'm just starting to figure it out myself. And also as a, as a, a recovering Twitter user, I, I have less ac- access to the sort of raw data on this stuff that I used to have, which is better for me and my thinking and writing, but it's a little, it makes it a little harder to actually figure out what's going on. Um, I will say actually on that note that when I was getting a ton of blowback from for my Warren pieces, I did look on Twitter to see what the shape of the conversation was. And I noticed... <laughs> You know, I was on I was on Twitter pretty heavily fighting with people pro Bernie, anti you know Hillary during like 2015, 2016. I noticed some of the exact same people were very upset with my Warren pieces, who had been on the opposite side of you know from me of the Bernie Hillary debates. So I do think that Warren is drawing some support and you can never tell from Twitter because it's not indicative. You know, these is a special, special little like class of people with their own uh, particularities. But I do think that there are, I mean, for one thing, Warren is a woman and there are a lot of people who uh, I think rightly would very much like to see a woman president and who uh, are pulling for Warren for that reason alone. 
And maybe we're pulling for Clinton for that reason alone. And for the, for those people, I actually think that the political considerations actually come second in some cases. So some of these people would have defended, you know, Hillary Clinton's very different political vision of the world uh, at the time when it was Hillary versus Bernie. But now they're defending, you know, Elizabeth Warren's political vision. Um, this is actually fantastic, in my opinion, because now we've got if, I don't know. I can't again. I don't know how big how how to how much to generalize that trend. But we've got people who are kind of blowing in the wind on the political questions, but very firmly attached to some of the ideology, I mean, the the identity considerations, um, who are now making, you know, full-throated defenses of, you know, well, well, Elizabeth Warren beat Bernie Sanders to the punch in terms of, like, worker governance on, like, corporate boards. So that's why I like Elizabeth Warren. And just to see that coming out of people's mouths, you can see that there's a sea change happening. Will that actually translate to those people realizing once Warren drops out that Bernie Sanders represents you know, the the politics of Warren much better than, than anybody else in the race at the end of the day. I, I think it remains to be seen. There is some very deep-seated resentment of Bernie Sanders among a sort of stratum of the professional managerial class who I think are uniquely drawn to identity concerns when it comes to backing candidates. And, um, and they may uh, Bernie, the whole like discourse around Bernie being not just another old white male, but somehow uh, very surreptitious because he is, is you know, posturing as, as a radical in some way they may have poisoned the well a little bit and they may not be able to bring themselves to pull that lever. Um, but I think many will. And I wonder if actually there's a dynamic at play where Warren is bringing some of those people to the left just because they find themselves defending her policies so frequently. Yeah, it's hard to say which direction this is going to go once, you know, things thin out. They're in the ranks of the leading, you know, nominees. This is an, you know, N equals one personal anecdote story. But I ran into a couple of women, you know, they were about my mother's age, you know, kind of well to do in, the, in, a, in, a, in a bougie suburb at a pizza joint. And they were, they were rocking these uh, 12 years T-shirts, the kind of, uh, you know, uh, pointing to this catastrophic accelerating climate catastrophe that we face. And they had just been to an Elizabeth Warren rally at the local college. And I gave them a thumbs up and I said, Hey, I really like your shirt. And they, you know, they were really jazzed up, you know, they, and then they're in their, in their own way, in their own, like the way that I could imagine, like my mother being jazzed up after, you know, about something. And, uh, and, and, and they were, they were really great. It's great to see, you know, people who are otherwise not found in the, the bunkers of politics, if you will, really standing up and fighting for what they believe in and particularly in, in the future and a future that, that none of them are really going to be allowed around for very long uh, to witness. So there's a real profound act of humanitarianism and solidarity in that spirit. But when I indicated to them that I was a Bernie supporter, they kind of frowned at me. <laughs> they kind of frowned at me and they said, Oh, well, you know, you, you keep it up. You know, it was, it was, uh, the, the, the tone of the room changed. Do you think that has to do with this Bernie bro um, slur, this Bernie bro kind of smear that is, that is, uh, are, are we still suffering from the damage that Hillary Clinton delivered and her staff and her campaign delivered in 2016? Yeah, I think we are. I think we are. And I think that the, you know, the, this is not necessarily, it's not that like Warren's campaign is not playing the same game against Bernie Sanders, right? In fact, their campaigns haven't been particularly oppositional to each other at all. 
Um, but Hillary Clinton, Clinton's campaign was enormously um, aggressive toward Bernie Sanders' campaign. That goes without saying, right? And it was the capitalist class is very clever and knows exactly what buttons to push to sow division and to, you know, the, the, the product of the Democratic Party establishment is a relatively politically aimless project. It doesn't actually have a vision of the world that it wants to bring about. What it has instead is a desire to stay afloat, to get its people into power, to make sure that, you know, the people who have careers continue to have careers. Um, and, and so it kind of creates a sort of co- it, it relies on creating a coalition of people who can't stand the Republicans. And then because that's not very inspiring, just hating your enemy, you know, the sort of like on the other side of the aisle without any broader sort of political rationale. It just sort of kind of buttresses that with massive cash, cash infusions from like the donor class, right? But in order to make that, you know, when you see a left challenger like Bernie comes in and really, uh, you know, it's like a bull in a china shop in that kind of scenario. And the way that the capitalist class and their allies in government, and particularly in the Democratic Party establishment, chose to uh, deal with that challenge was to reach for the lowest hanging fruit, which is to say to call up issues that are actually of great importance, genuinely racism and sexism and so on, um, and that people rightly care about, and to weaponize them very cynically against the challenger from the left whose policy ideas were ex- like, I mean, 10 times stronger in terms of actually delivering a world free of prejudice, free of discrimination, and uh, free of not just those things, but also, you know, exploitation and domination of all kinds. So we are still suffering a little bit from that offensive. It was um, extraordinarily effective and plenty of people uh, unwittingly participated in it and sort of played along with it and didn't necessarily understand um, the broader terrain in which they were operating. And I think that the message permeated, uh, at least permeated into a particular stratum, uh, which is to say the professional managerial class sort of mostly mostly white, um, mostly over the age of 35, mostly well-heeled in their, um, you know, they, they've had decent careers and so on. Um, I think that those people, it's going to be hard to sort of bring them back from the edge and to make an argument that actually um, the, the ideas that Bernie Sanders is putting forward, this is a program for racial justice. This is a program for gender justice. justice. Um, I wrote I wrote an article that has yet to be published. I just wrote it yesterday about uh Medicare for all and the impact that it would have on gay and transgender people. I, this article has literally not been written before. I look, I looked, I tried to find it. I was going to model whatever I wrote after whatever was already out there. And I just couldn't find it because that's, you know, if that's the kind of thing where if we don't do it, then nobody will. And the discourse will continue to be that Bernie Sanders by not sort of, um, that Bernie Sanders somehow by making universal demands like Medicare for all is actually on the opposite side of these questions when it comes to discrimination and prejudice. Hey, everybody, I hope you're enjoying today's episode. I just wanted to butt in really quickly to do a funding pitch. As you can probably tell by the nature of our conversation today, our corporate overlords are not exactly tripping over themselves to fund Dead Pundit Society. So if you listen to DPS on a weekly or a monthly basis and you enjoy what we do here and you want to support it, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a member of the society today. Over the course of today's episode, Megan and I talk about the extraordinary opportunities and extraordinary challenges presented by the Sanders wave. In order for us to take full advantage of these opportunities, we need to have a large and capacious and well-funded socialist media ecosystem. 
If the Democratic Socialists are going to prevail in this Bernie Sanders moment, we need to be able to have control over our own message. We can't rely on MSNBC, Vox, or even The Nation magazine to carry the banner of democratic socialism and to tell the people what it means and what we stand for. We have to do that ourselves. Socialists need to be on the forefront of explaining to the mass public what socialism is, what it means, how the strategies work, and what the benefits are of a socialist agenda. But unlike those corporate outlets like The Nation, MSNBC, and Vox, we don't have well-funded sponsors in order to reach the mainstream. So we rely on the generous contributions of our listeners and our viewers to do that. Most of you will have noticed by now that DPS has witnessed an ambitious expansion over the past few weeks. We've launched our YouTube channel. I just released a second weekly video this past week. People should check that out. The link to the YouTube feed is in the show notes. We've also launched a website that can be found at deadpundits.com. As the days and weeks go on, that's going to host more and more content, including a whole host of articles that are going to go up within the week. And in spite of this ambitious expansion project, it's still not enough. There are millions and millions of people across the country, hundreds of millions of people across the world who need to hear this message. And we need your support to be able to do that. So if you are financially stable enough to do so, I implore you, head over to deadpundits.com, check out what we have to offer. And if you agree with me that these politics and my excellent guests deserve to have a much larger platform, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber today. As a reward, you'll receive access to our weekly B-sides. The B-side that I record with Megan is really fantastic. We talk about the challenges that are going to be faced by Democratic Socialists of America going forward in the midst of this Bernie Sanders wave. So you're not going to want to miss that. I hope you're enjoying what we're doing here at DPS Media, and I hope that you'll support the project so we can continue expanding if you're financially able to do so. All right. Now back to the episode. Well done in that regard. I know that uh, that that sentiment. If we don't do it, then nobody will. Uh, that 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 hits home here, and I think that we all should sort of look at our own responsibility in this movement and in this way. And in terms of Bernie Sanders being a in in many respects a, a fairly limited and and a weak uh, social democratic candidate in substance, uh, which is precisely why socialists need to get involved. And I want to talk a little bit about that now. He released a, a really exciting policy platform having to do with uh, co-determination and firm ownership, employee ownership of firms uh, that was inspired by a bunch of Corbinite economists coming over here about a month and a half ago, two months ago, and having a little uh, little meeting of the minds with Sanders, uh, Sanders' advisors. And uh, I know Merkley's uh, people were in on that meeting as well. And, you know, I think this, this cross-pollination of ideas across the pond, this transatlantic left, if you will, that's, that's forming between these Corbinites and Sanders people and hopefully AOC's people, they were uh, not directly involved. They were indirectly involved with those meetings. I'd like to see her step up and, uh, you know, step up to the plate and start thinking through how she can push forward on these policies as well. But talk to me a little bit about the future of these policies should Sanders get elected. That was the topic of uh, not the most recent issue of Jacobin magazine, but the one prior to that should Sanders be elected. Uh, and you had uh, some pretty significant ideas there about what he could do and what the kind of limitations he would face. I suspect that will be a major component of the book that you're writing with Micah. So hit me with some ideas there. What, what could a president Sanders do that would be actionable 
in the immediate term and what are some of the key limitations that he would face? So it's very difficult to imagine that if Bernie Sanders became president, he could pass through really very much of his very ambitious platform through whatever, you know, legislature emerges uh, at that time. Because Bernie is a really funny figure. It's not like in a more sort of ideal scenario, I guess, if socialists were to like draw it out and, and write down to a T how we'd like for it to go. We'd have a socialist running for president after we'd already established, you know, extraordinarily vibrant and powerful workers movement. We had an independent party representing that movement. Um, these things were integrated with each other. The party was democratic. It had a mass membership. Uh, it had some means of accountability for candidates. And the person who was floated for president would sort of be like the, the chosen person to go represent that mass movement on the ground. That's like the ideal scenario in terms of getting stuff passed, right? Because then you, you have somebody at the top of a very large pyramid. Unfortunately, Bernie is um, not in that position right now. Um, and I think it's really unwise for us to, you know, sit around, you know, wishing that things were different when, in fact, uh, we have a wonderful opportunity here to build the kind of mass movement that we wish to see. So, yeah, Bernie's in this position where um, he's actually out there on the campaign trail all the time trying to actually build that mass movement with everything that he says. You know, that long quote that I just gave you about it's what it's it happens when millions of people stand up and demand it. You know, he has his slogan, not me, us. He has his, you know, insistence that we need to have a political revolution. He's always talking about how change doesn't happen from the top on down. It happens from the bottom on up. And when he says that, I think it's important for us to realize that he's not just flattering us. He's actually describing the mechanism by which he could get literally anything done if he were president. Um, so, for example, Medicare for all, uh, that's not going to happen unless we have, you know, a mass movement for Medicare for all that can actually create some sort of like counterpower outside of the state, putting politicians in a situation where the dictum that they typically receive from the capitalist class to just like um, cater to capitalist class interests becomes an ultimatum for them where they now because we have, you know, a, we have a democracy, they have to measure that against the will of the people and make a, a calculated decision based on their own careers, because these are not socialists, these politicians are not socialists, they're not they're not even social democrats, they're not going to be guided by their own, you know, desire to see Medicare for all manifest, we just don't have that kind of movement in the United States. There is one sort of exception in, in terms of what he could do. And that's executive orders. So as you might imagine, the president of the United States is an extraordinarily powerful person on the global stage um, and can actually do things that most individual people can't do, specifically through executive orders. Um, they are kind of ephemeral. So modern presidents pass hundreds of them. Um, in the past, thousands of them have been passed. FDR passed like 3,000 of them. And a lot of them actually made up the New Deal. The, the, those, those things were passed by executive order in, in many cases. Uh, so they, you know, they can be used for good or for evil. I think, you know, um, FDR, you know, signed an executive order to put, you know, Japanese people in internment camps, in addition to all of the executive orders he passed for the New Deal, right? Um, and they are kind of ephemeral, like I said, because the next president can come along and issue an executive order that just reverses the one that you passed. But what they can do, they may not be permanent, but they can have a, a material impact in like right now. So, for example, if Bernie Sanders were to pass an executive order saying that all new federal infrastructure projects need to be measured up against 
um, some sort of standard for emissions. And if they fail a very strict standard, and if they fail that standard, they're just literally not going to be built. This is going to have a, a major material impact in like immediately. Right. Um, and so even if the next president comes along and wants to pass a completely different executive order, we can see that it, it has, it has an effect. And another, another one that would have an, a, an amazing effect would be that Bernie Sanders could by executive order actually eliminate all student debt. Would he actually do that? I don't know, but I looked into it when I was writing the piece and, um, talked to a bunch of people who are much smarter about this than I. And it turns out that the department of education can actually write off all of the loans for which it is the uh, creditor and can actually also assume loans um, that are owed to private lenders and write those off too. And of course, the Department of uh, Education secretary reports to um, the president. So the president could issue an executive order to that effect. That would have an immediate material impact. Um, I mean, and that's the kind of thing that you can't, you can't just have a next, another president come along and say, uh, actually, the student loans are reinstated. I mean, by that point, the student loan companies have crumbled and they cease to exist more or less. So, so I think that, you know, we can, we can think about executive orders as being a place where Bernie could make some major change. But I also try to point out in the piece that really the, the job of, if Bernie Sanders were to become president, his role would be first as a movement builder and only second as you know, somebody who actually like legislate or put rights in sort of policy to to make immediate uh, change, but the the like executive orders that he could pass could actually be um, enormously helpful for building movements because they could be picking fights, right? Like, let's go back to the example that I had about. Um, you know, uh, federal infrastructure projects needing to uh, be up to a sort of standard of emissions. The capitalist class is not going to be happy about this. And in fact, they'll try to tie it up in the courts. And, you know, we have a very reactionary court system. And maybe the maybe the legislature would try to get involved and like write some new legislation that would override this somehow. But now, even if it doesn't materialize, now what we have is a fight, a massive fight that millions of people are watching. And it's entirely clear whose side the capitalists are on and whose side the people who call themselves democratic socialists are on. And it kind of exposes class conflict in a way and actually weaves it into our political culture in a way that we desperately need right now, not just to raise the expectations of the working class, to raise class consciousness and to give people a feeling that change is not only possible, but that they have to be a part of that change uh, by fighting on the ground because they know that their representatives or or various elements of the bureaucracy and the government are not going to necessarily have their back. So, so that's my goal if he gets elected and who knows if he will, um, fingers crossed is that he can use that office as a sort of bully pulpit to pick fights with capitalist elites and there, there, thereby change the terrain of, of politics in the United States. I'm sold. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. I mean, there, there are other mechanisms. You know, I, George W. Bush made these signing statements pretty famous. I don't know if many of us had heard of them prior to his abuse of these signing statements, which are these little notes that uh, that you sort of add to the end of a bill after you sign it. It goes across your desk as a president, and he notoriously took quite a bit of latitude with these signing statements, really altering the language and the interpretation of these statutes in a way that was uh, potentially unconstitutional and against the separation of powers. But uh, we don't really care much for the Constitution anyway. Yeah, I said it. I don't know. I don't. I don't think any right wingers listen to this anyway. So they're not going to. They're not going to clip it uh, and make us famous. But uh, we have serious problems with the 
anti-working class elements in the so-called property relation interpretations of the Constitution. Therefore, if Bernie Sanders can use these signing statements in our benefit, all the better. He also has a massive executive, uh, you know, branch, as you mentioned, at his power, at his disposal. Um, you know, the 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 opportunities are are limitless, and it's astonishing to me, if I may be so bold. Sorry, listeners, if this is upsetting. It's astonishing to me that people aren't more excited about that prospect. It's not full luxury space communism, but uh, it's a it's a giant leap in the right direction. But before we can get there, we got to take down a man with a tremendous amount of name recognition and very poor interpersonal boundaries. Joe Biden. We're doing some inside baseball. Let's can, let's keep that up a little bit uh, before we get back to the the strategies going forward as democratic socialists, how we interact and, and, and engage with Bernie Sanders. What are Joe Biden's chances right now? They seem pretty good. What's it going to take to take him down? Yeah, they're pretty good. And I'm, I'm pretty upset about it. I mean, I, I don't really know what else to say, except that my hope is that, you know, people are really spoiling for a fight and that they, they, they find their opportunity to be a part of that fight and to genuinely change the conditions of their lives in the Bernie Sanders campaign. And they decide to throw their weight behind it. And somehow he manages to overcome Joe Biden. But unfortunately, um, there is a sense of a widespread because of Donald Trump and because of how odious he is just, you know, just categorically odious piece of shit there are many Democrats who are nostalgic for the Obama era and we haven't done as good of a job as we'd like to as socialists in demonstrating the extent to which the Obama administration uh, carried on, you know, the legacy of neoliberalism and actually set the stage for Donald Trump's emergence. I think Bernie Sanders did a better job, um, you know, cracking that open for people than pretty much any other single individual has. And it's given us lots of opportunities to make that case, but we haven't been able to make it on like a mass scale. And so there are plenty of people out there who are well-meaning people who genuinely do want their lives to be better and who are rightly very scared of Donald Trump and of the rising right and who just want to go back to what they see as a more civil time, a more sane time. And I think that Joe Biden's going to carry that vote pretty handily. Um, so the question really has to be, how much can we as socialists and as Bernie supporters and as people on this side of the fight, how much can we galvanize the people who have, you know, just a shade more understanding or a shade more contempt, perhaps, for the Democratic Party establishment, having been fucked over in one way or another by some policy, whether it's, you know, wealth, welfare reform or, or whatever else, that they could sort of understand that, that we're not, we don't need to revert back to, you know, the status quo of a few years ago. We need to actually be looking forward to a new type of politics that's the real that's the real conflict on the ground i guess is um i think that those numbers are there i think that we can probably put together a coalition of people who actually don't want to see you know obama but way worse be president but the question is how do we get those people to be polls how do we get them invested so that they turn into organizers themselves and that question is an unresolved one because unfortunately we're starting with you know some pretty thin raw materials after decades of neoliberal assault on leftism in, in every iteration. It seems to me that the the prime constituency there that we need to fight over, and there have been a couple articles that have been written about this, this, this just this week, uh, are seniors. Seniors vote in droves. They are 
they hit the polls uh, every single election, whether it's a, you know, a by-election or a special election or it's not even election. They just want to show up at the school to see if there's uh, some kind of a, a vote that they can cast. <laughs> you know, they'll be there. And sadly, right now, Biden is pulling about 53 percent to Sanders, 9 percent among seniors. And that's abysmal. Um, fortunately there are a tremendous, we have numbers in the millennial and the Gen Xer and even the Gen Z's who can vote now, which is astonishing. We're getting old Megan. Uh, but, uh, what do you think, you know, aside from recruiting Wilford Brimley to the cause of democratic socialism, what do you think Sanders can do to attract that key senior vote in these primaries? It's really important, actually, and I don't think that we think about it or talk about it quite enough because we're all very focused on the exciting rise of the millennial socialists and, you know, Bernie's got this huge young base and so on. But you need to build a coalition of, of people, including people who vote often. My, my, my main point, the point that I was making in the last comment was that I think that you need to get people to vote who don't typically vote. Um, which is to say, not usually seniors. Um, but you also need to get seniors to realize that Bernie Sanders is going to represent their material interests, even as much as Joe Biden represents this kind of like nostalgia for a more sane time, which is just kind of like a typical um, worldview that kind of creeps into your brain once you get over the age of 60 anyway, and it can take on a sort of like Democratic Party establishment flavor or any other flavor, right? But you, But Bernie Sanders did this really effectively when he went on Fox News. And I was a huge proponent of Bernie going on Fox News. I thought it was incredible. I thought he did a really wonderful job. I thought that the kind of prudery about it from various sections of, you know, the liberal commentariat and the like uh, anti-fascist left were missing the forest for the trees because he spoke to millions of people. Um, a lot of those people were Fox News viewers who just always watch Fox News and they just had it on in their homes and they watch it sort of passively. And he talked about Social Security and he talked about, you know, um, he talked about uh, health care and he talked about, you know, things that seem, he talked about, you know, his Medicare for all bill now has a provision for long term health care. Um, you know, he talked about pensions. I mean, these are these are material concerns that people over the age of 65 have in increasing numbers. And that's the only way that Bernie's going to break through the kind of like nostalgic fog and reach out to people and get them to vote for him is by talking to them about like, look, you are still a person who is struggling. You are a person who was promised a peaceful retirement and you worked your entire life for that. And it's just not happening, is it? Well, who's responsible for that? You know, the millionaires and the billionaires are responsible for that, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and we have to take them on together. That means you have to join this coalition of all of these young people, even though they play their music too loud and they're, you know, use all this slang that you don't like, you know, we have to band together and we have to see ourselves as, you know, across lines of difference as, as people united in a common purpose and united against a common enemy. I don't know if Bernie's people need a speechwriter, but, uh, I'm just saying, if you're listening out there, uh, hit up Megan Day. That's a pretty good message. You know, I would just simply add to that is, you know, we need commercials, you know, so advertisements, uh, it's got to be like on, you know, during like the dinner hour, not YouTube. Seniors don't watch YouTube as much. It's got to be during the dinner hour. Maybe like, maybe like during Matlock or something like comes on at eight on like, you know, one of those Turner home classic channels or whatever. 
And, you know, it's got a, it's a grandson who's really struggling, you know, to find a job and find work. And, you know, if not do it for yourself, do it for your grandkids. Like that kind of message would be very heartwarming, cross-generational solidarity. But you're right. Seniors have a lot to lose and a lot of them are struggling as it is. On that note, let's talk a little bit about some remarks that economist Joseph Stiglitz made in Foreign Policy magazine. It was an interview that just came out this past week, and he is among the chorus of you know, these mainstream types, these former Clintonites. I'm talking Bill in the 90s and others who are warning the Democratic Party not to go too far in the Democratic Socialist direction, lest they ruin their chances in 2020. And yet that doesn't seem to be the case if you look at the popularity of these policies. So I think we can combine all of these topics, the, the question of the, the senior vote, the question of Bernie going on Fox and Elizabeth Warren not choosing, electing to not go on Fox, uh, alongside this claim that's out there in the ether. We can finish up with this about how somehow, despite this massive popularity of democratic socialist policies, democratic socialism itself is a losing strategy. Now, how can both be true? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's funny that you bring that up because I was actually thinking about writing something about this for Jacobin, uh, Stiglitz's remarks. And uh, it raised so many questions for me that I actually put it on the back burner and decided I'd circle around to it. But now you're putting me on the spot, so I'll have to tell you what I think. Um, yeah. So... Stiglitz's main concern seems to be that calling yourself a socialist makes it impossible for you to get elected. I actually, to be honest, don't know if he's right or not on a national scale. I think that in many ways, Bernie Sanders' campaign is sort of a referendum on that. But in so much as Bernie's you know, recent political career is a referendum on that question, while we don't know if calling yourself a democratic socialist actually makes it impossible for you to win, we do know that it does not stop you from coming out of relative obscurity to be one of the most important political figures in the American landscape. And in, you know, for a while in like 2017, people were saying that Bernie Sanders was, you know, their favorite politician, like just across America, he was the most favored politician. Um, I think that one really important factor that I think Stiglitz might be missing, which is a shame because he lived through all of this and and was in in many ways implicated in it. So uh, maybe he was just in too deep to notice it happening is that Fox News called everything socialist for so long that it doesn't mean anything anymore. Um, For those of us to whom socialism means something both very specific and very important, this is like a godsend because we get to redefine the term. And I think that, you know, some people on the hard left are, you know, constantly upset that they think that, you know, Bernie Sanders doesn't define it in precisely the way that they would like. But again, missing the forest for the trees. This is like there is an opportunity now to get people warming up to the idea of socialism and getting out of, like you know, this Cold War, getting rid of this Cold War hangover and starting to think critically about, you know, capitalism and socialism are two diametrically opposed things. What do we think about capitalism? Has it provided the bounty and the liberty that it's promised? What do we think that socialism can actually achieve instead? How do we want to define it in a new era? And these are the kinds of questions that are now only being raised on the national stage because Bernie Sanders called himself a socialist um, and managed to gain a lot of traction while calling himself a socialist. So to the question of whether Stiglitz is right about, you know, scaring people off by using the term, I don't 
I, I'm not confident. I'm not confident enough to be able to say that he's completely wrong. I think that there is some liability there, if I'm being honest. And I think that I, I, I see a little bit of boosterism from, you know, my comrades on the left around this that I actually would caution us against. But that doesn't mean that's not a good excuse not to do it is kind of my point, um, because we have a long term vision. We have a long term project. And we know that, you know, it's not about just defeating Donald Trump in 2020. It's about defeating the right. The right doesn't deserve the support that it currently has from the working class portion of its base. And frankly, neither does the Democratic Party deserve the work, the support of the working class portion of its base. The socialist project is about cleaving those bases and uniting them as a base, a separate base that has a sense of itself as a class, a class for itself, as Marx would say. Um, and you're not going to do that if you're if you're if you're making all of your decisions, calculating all of your decisions around um, electability. Now that said, I don't think that we can throw electability to the wind. But I think that Bernie Sanders does is actually probably um, the he's one of the smartest people out there in terms of balancing these two things. If he was concerned only about electability, he would have probably stopped calling himself a socialist a long time ago. Uh, he's clearly not. So, but but if he was completely unconcerned about electability, we'd probably hear him calling for the stuff today that he was calling for in the 1970s, you know, worker ownership of the means of production, you know, now. Um, and I think that he's smart enough to know that since the goal is to actually build a mass movement of people who, you know, really genuinely do want to put people over profit and, and build a movement to, to do that, you know, building up social democracy, eventually reaching the point where the capitalist class can no longer abide social democracy, but the social democratic reforms that have been passed have actually built a, a coalition, a sort of engine of solidarity, as some people have called it, that can actually fight for those reforms, comes to understand that the only way to actually keep nice things, as it were, is to actually eliminate private ownership of productive assets. And in order to do that, I think that Bernie Sanders knows that he's going to have to pitch his politics in a mass register. But he's not a full on, you know, he's not a full on left populist, as they say. He's not he's, he's not entirely opportunist. He he actually does stick to his guns on some things that um, might be a liability, such as calling himself a socialist. And I think that he's right to do that. Um, it's always really tricky to find the balance. But I just feel grateful, I guess, that there's someone out there who's actually trying to find that balance and is gaining some traction with it. Well said. Quite the exclamation point for our A-side chat today. If you're not a Bernie bro... Um, you know, hold your nose and be one anyway, because I think we've made a pretty strong case here. Definitely you have, Megan, to that, that, you know, we need Bernie and Bernie needs us. I don't know which one is, uh, you know, more, I, I don't know which one, but I will call it a 50-50 at this point. I think there's no question that the Bernie wave has resuscitated the, the democratic socialist movement in the United States. Um, in ways that we, I think that your formulation, Megan, perhaps, dare I say, you told me off the air, in ways that we don't deserve. We didn't deserve the meteoric rise that democratic socialism, uh, you know, has seen over the past several years. Uh, and by we didn't deserve it doesn't mean that, you know, it's not deserving or the moral thing, uh, you know, to, to occur, but such that we didn't necessarily lay the foundations there were no founding. I mean, there was no organization as, as such, right, in, in, in the existence. So maybe just wrap up a little bit talking about this kind of godsend, this almost like, <laughs> hell, I'll say it, this quasi-messianic deliverance 
of this democratic socialist gift that is Bernie Sanders, limited as it is, fraught as it will inevitably uh, be. Um, what do you make of this gift? Am I am I coming on too strong? What do you think? I mean, I think that you know, I did I did say that to you, and I have said that a lot uh, in, in private conversations. But I'll just go ahead and say it publicly. You know, the left didn't actually um, lay the groundwork properly for the massive explosion of interest in socialist politics that we are seeing right now. Um, this cannot be attributed to just solely to the hard work of socialists on the ground. One thing that can be attributed to the, to the work of socialists on the ground is keeping the sort of like flame alive during the darkest, darkest decades of neoliberalism, such that when material conditions changed, I would say you know, through the 90s sort of stagnating wages and rising living costs, exacerbated enormously by the 2008 financial crisis and finding some kind of like political expression in the form of protest in Occupy Wall Street and then in Black Lives Matter. And now that, that, that sort of the resurgence that happened then, you know, it was important that there were socialists who had continued thinking about what socialism means and keeping al keeping alive spaces where these ideas can continue to flourish um, during the moments of their most extreme marginality. Now that said, if Bernie Sanders hadn't run in 2015, I feel very confident in saying that we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in right now. That doesn't mean that we wouldn't be in a situation characterized by mass disillusionment, um, by mass resentment for you know some kind of vaguely you know, the sort of the vague notion of like the establishment or or uh, anger about specific issues such as, you know, police brutality against black people. Um, but we wouldn't necessarily have had the tools that we now have to be able to put together the, you know, very beginnings of what I hope will become a mass movement. And I think that Bernie Sanders, it's like a combination between you know, the completely objective conditions, which is to say everything I just said about, you know, like the changes in the political economy and the sort of like, um, you know, on the left, a sort of like a, a explosion of protests and a, maybe a growing awareness that we need to move from, as Leo Panich says, a protest to politics, but then the totally thoroughly subjective qualities of this one guy who comes from a previous era when class politics were actually on the table and managed to gain a lot of credibility for himself such that he could actually step to the front and offer this new movement the kind of electoral leadership that it might need in this moment to actually you know effectively complete that transition or begin perhaps that transition from protest to politics hopefully complete it you know soon um and also that he just like happened we're so lucky that he just like happened to stay alive honestly and that he's in good health and that he like still retain he sticks to his principles he's been saying the same thing so consistently for so many decades i mean a lot of these are just like subject subjective facts about bernie sanders for which i think we should be extraordinarily grateful not because bernie sanders is some sort of savior figure not because we're going to vote him into office and then he's going to take care of this whole capitalism business for us i don't think anybody actually thinks that i find it a little offensive that when i try to argue in favor of you know bernie sanders people always con sort of constantly imply that i i have hold him in some sort of like 
uh, messianic regard as though I think that the constant allegation being that I think that we can like, you know, vote in socialism or something like that. No, on the contrary, it's just that where before there wasn't a mass conversation happening about capitalism and socialism and about the working class and the capitalist class and how their interests are diametrically opposed and about how the working class needs to unite together to fight its common enemy, which is the capitalist class, though it may not always be pitched in those terms, but as Bernie Sanders put it in his town hall uh, last year, I think, you know, he put it CEOs versus workers. I think that's pretty close. Um, that conversation wasn't happening before, and now it is happening. And now that it is happening, it's a hothouse environment for those of us who are committed to actually affecting a transition from capitalism to socialism to organizing. And by organize, I don't just mean electorally. I mean to build the self-organizational capacity of the working class so that it can become the force that actually delivers real transformative change. Very well said. Uh, I've got nothing to add. I've got nothing. So we'll wrap up the A side there and we'll take it to the B side now for patrons. Everybody look out for this book, tentatively titled Bigger Than Bernie. But that title speaks volumes. I kind of hope you keep that. I hope that you're able to keep that. Uh, the editors and the press go for it uh, because it, it's, a, it's a supportive, sympathetic indication that we, we need to do bigger and better. And if not us, then who? I think in my darkest moments, uh, given the political climate that we're living through right now, I take solace in this fact that, I mean, it really is like what we do now matters more than ever as individuals. Like when in the course of human history can people really say that, you know, that and I'll just I'll spill it again. I said it uh, several weeks ago. I can't remember what context, but I got it on good authority from a very reputable source that Bernie, when he has time off, when he's in his plane or, or whatever, he's got some downtime, reads Jacobin and Common Dreams. Those two outlets are his favorite outlets. So if you want, if you want to get Bernie's ear, you you either write in Jacobin or Common Dreams among of all places. I'm not sure where that comes from. That's a bit of a that's a bit of an old head outlet. It's really really great actually, but I think it resonates bigger with the kind of boomers in the '60s generation. But so that's just to say that you know the the words that we write, the debates that we're having, the contributions that we make today matter in really profound ways. If these Corbinites hadn't wandered across the sea, you know, last month to whisper in the ears of these Bernie Sanders advisors, maybe we wouldn't have seen those policies. And so the actions of a few, you know, we can really punch above our weight in this moment. And uh, I encourage people to heed these words that you've heard in the past hour. Write them down. Get them tattooed on your forehead. <laughs> Megan Day, thanks again. We'll take it to the B side now. If you're not a patron, you're going to miss out. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundit to support the new left agenda and get those B-sides while you're at it. All right. Thanks again, Megan. Thank you, Adam. And that concludes today's A-side with Megan Day. I hope you all enjoyed that very much. This also concludes the free portion of this week's offerings from Dead Pundit Society Podcast. Be sure to head over to our YouTube channel. The link is in the show notes. DPS Media is just cranking up. We're just getting started, people. I released this second weekly video of the Democratic Socialism 101 series. That project is focused on trying to influence YouTube in a much more leftward direction. As many of you know, the libertarians and the alt-right have a near hegemony over there on YouTube, and socialists are beginning to fight back in order to win over the young hearts and minds of the United States and elsewhere. 
The B-side is going to be landing for patrons in just a couple of days. So if you want to hear that and you want to support this new left agenda and keep this expansion rolling, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a member of the society today. If you are not financially able to join the Patreon at this time, I ask that you share our stuff on social media. Likes, retweets, and shares cost absolutely nothing, and they require only about a millisecond of your time to click that share button. So share us on Twitter, share us on Facebook, get the word out there, give us a, give us a review on iTunes. I'm told that makes a difference. I'm told that that will help other people find their way to our show, maybe win them over to democratic socialism, who knows. All right, if you're a patron, we'll chat with you in a couple of days. The B-Side lands on Friday. If you're not a patron, look out for episode three of Democratic Socialism 101 on YouTube, landing early next week. Either way, enjoy your weekend, and we'll see you same time, same place for next week's A-Side. Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this you crazy mother...